Welcome to The Common Rounds. Medical education for medical students by medical students. In today's um, discussion, we'll be going through raised intracranial pressure. Now, before we um, get into the details of raised intracranial pressure, I'd like to start by defining some key terminologies. The first one that I'll talk about is cerebral spinal fluid. And whilst it sounds basic, it's really important to understand and appreciate what it is. Cerebral spinal fluid is a fluid that is found surrounding the brain and the spinal cord. It is clear and colorless in nature, and it's produced by the choroid plexus of the lateral ventricles, as well as the fourth ventricle. And it is released into the subarachidonic space and circulates around the brain, eventually being drained into the sinuses of the brain, which ultimately lead to its um, uh, return back into systemic circulation. Now, cerebral spinal fluid functions to protect the brain by sort of acting as a shock absorber and a cushion, so the brain is not rattling around in this empty cavity. Another term that I've already mentioned is intracranial pressure, and that is the pressure inside the skull. So changes in intracranial pressure um, result from either changes in any of the volume components in the skull, so the brain, if it's inflamed, for example, or cerebral spinal fluid, if it's produced in excessive amounts, for some reason its drainage is uh, affected. There are other key terminologies that we need to consider as well. And there's also the basic physiology that we need to discuss to better understand the pathophysiology of raised intracranial pressures. Now, as I've mentioned, because the skull is a rigid, closed structure, small changes in intracranial volume really results in significant changes in intracranial pressure. Now, for a normal adult, intracranial pressure is less than 15 um, millimeters of mercury. And for a child, it's less, it's three to seven millimeters of mercury. A raised intracranial pressure is considered if the pressure is greater than 20 millimeters of mercury and a severe elevation is considered if it's greater than 40 millimeters of mercury. In your readings, you might also come across another terminology called cerebral perfusion pressure. Cerebral perfusion pressure is the pressure gradient that acts across the cerebral vascular bed. And it's really important for maintaining cerebral blood flow. In your textbooks, you might come across it as mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure. And that's the link between cerebral perfusion pressure and intracranial pressure. Thankfully, there are auto-regulation mechanisms that arterials in the brain have to ensure constant cerebral blood perfusion, despite the fact that you might see some variations in the cerebral perfusion pressure. But normally, the cerebral perfusion pressure is around 70 to 90 millimeters of mercury in adults. And it really shouldn't go less than 70 millimeters of mercury because that can then result in decreased pressure in terms of blood perfusion and decreased capacity to perfuse the brain, which obviously increases the risk of ischemia. But also, because the CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid, is produced as a consequence of blood flow to those regions discussed with the choroid plexus, that can then in turn result in reduced um, cerebral spinal fluid production as well. As I've mentioned, as cerebral perfusion pressure increases, there are auto-regulatory mechanisms that help maintain it. So as it increases, arterial wall stretch occurs, and that can cause a transient decrease in the pressure. So that's how then the perfusion is maintained. And obviously the opposite is true when there's a decrease in pressure as well. But having said that, there are limitations on how much auto-regulation can occur. So when the mean arterial pressure is less than 65 millimeters of mercury or greater than 115 millimeters of mercury, then auto-regulation just can't function at those really high or low ranges. And so as a consequence of that, blood flow is no longer tied with cerebral perfusion pressures, but rather how much blood pressure a patient has, so whether it's 190 over, you know, over 100, or whether the patient's hypertensive. And so it's really important to bear that in mind that 
the autoregulatory mechanisms have their uh, limitations, and this is you know the upper and the lower ends are, are where you know patients can be in a lot of trouble. What happens, let's say, what happens when there is an increase in intracranial pressure? So we mentioned what happens when there's changes to cerebral perfusion pressure, but let's discuss what happens when there's an increase in intracranial pressure. Well, there are a number of ways the body can deal with this. So one is either increased drainage of the cerebral spinal fluid, but also increased drainage of the venous blood because ultimately the cerebral spinal fluid can, drains into the venous blood from the cranium. But also, as, as you can imagine, these also have limits as well. And so, you know, patients may suddenly find themselves in a position where they can't compensate adequately enough. And then that's when you start seeing some of those manifestations of increased intracranial pressure. So it's really important to understand the link between cerebral perfusion pressure, intracranial pressure, and as I mentioned, blood flow. And I've go through a very basic equation, which is, you know, if, if you've done a little bit of physics or if you've done any cardiac um, physiology, you'll understand. So as you know, blood pressure or simply put pressure is a product of resistance in a lumen times how much things are flowing through. So in this case, let's imagine that's blood. So as you can imagine, let's put this in the context of a brain. So cerebral perfusion pressure is equal to how much blood flow is throwing it as well as the resistance. Now, we always want the blood flow to be constant. So as cerebral perfusion goes up, then naturally resistance in the vessels goes down, which is, uh, as I've alluded to, is part of the autoregulation uh, auto we've discussed already. Conversely, if um, cerebral perfusion pressure decreases, then resistance has to go up to then uh, maintain a, a, a stable blood flow. Now, if you draw the equations out and if you have a look at what I've done, it makes a lot more sense. Um, so be sure to do that. Now that we've covered physiology, let's quickly finish off by talking about the pathophysiology and the causes of increased intracranial pressure. So most obviously, cerebral edema is a cause. So that would be things like um, when uh, there is um, brain injury or brain tissue, and then you get inflammation and increased volume of the brain as a consequence of the inflammatory process. There are also osmotic causes, for example. So when patients um, have hyponatremia, so the lower sodium in the blood causes the blood and the, the, the water in, in the blood to then diffuse into the brain tissue causing inflammation. There's also other causes like hydrocephalus where you can't adequately drain um, the cerebral spinal fluid. There's pseudomotor, um, pseudotumor cerebri, which is an idiopathic intracranial hypertension. It's not known why this occurs. So there are a number of causes to keep in mind. Another key thing that you guys might, which might be particularly pertinent to um, patients who have had stroke is increased uh, intracranial blood volume. So obviously that increased volume is not draining appropriately and accumulates in the brain. That can be due to also decreased venous flow or decreased obstruction. So if a patient has a venous thrombi and they can't drain the blood volume, that could be the case as well. Another obvious thing would be um, vasodilation. So in patients who are hypoxic, CO2 can cause um, vasodilation to increase blood flow um, to the area. Decreased oxygenation can cause vasodilation as well as a way of ensuring the brain gets adequate blood flow. So um, it's really important to um, keep an eye on, on these sort of features and recognize that there are lots of reasons why you can get intracranial pressure that doesn't necessarily relate to just, let's say, hemorrhage. There are lots of other causes. And finally, and perhaps one of the most obvious ones is um, something that is occupying that space. So an intracranial space occupying lesions such as tumor, or, as I mentioned already, blood um, following hemorrhage or trauma. Now, 
What are some of the signs and symptoms that you might expect? Well, you can divide this into acute and chronic. Let's talk about acute first. So acute, you might expect them to have severe headaches, um, which worsens with posture because changes in posture can cause a transient increase in um, intracranial pressure. So when the patient bends over, for example, patients can have nausea and vomiting as well, decreased consciousness, so decreased Glasgow coma scale, um, ophthalmic changes as well, such as retinal hemorrhage, um, papilledema, abnormal eye movements, because imagine if um, the cranial nerves are getting cr crushed under the weight of this pressure, then they can have abnormal firing, which then translates into abnormal movements. That high pressure can also push the brain um, uh, to areas of lower pressure so that patients can get herniations, um, uh, which is obviously a medical emergency. Now, as I mentioned, there are acute and chronic signs. Chronically, you get similar symptoms, but it occurs over a more gradual prolonged period of time so you don't get this acute emergency this just these symptoms headaches nausea and vomiting um, perhaps decreased consciousness and alertness are increasingly evident and progressively worsen over time now what are the complications well, and why do we care about you know a raised intracranial pressure well as i've mentioned before you can get an optic nerve compression and visual impairment and in severe cases blindness um, as I mentioned, if there's decrease in perfusion pressure due to this massively high intracranial pressure, then that can decrease blood flow to the, to the brain, can bring about decreased consciousness, as I mentioned, coma and death as well. And in a late stage, you might come across a sign or a symptom referred to as a cushion's response. And that's where patients present with hypertension and bradycardia. The hypertension comes about because of the decreased perfusion of the brain. So the body compensates by increasing um, the blood pressure, which in the hope of increasing, you know, pushing more blood into the brain. But at the same time, you experience bradycardia, which is very counterintuitive. And the reason you get bradycardia is suddenly the heart, the, the body is detecting this rapid increase in cardiac output and heart rate. And as a consequence, there's a reflex decrease in um, heart rate, hence bradycardia. And finally, if due to herniation or really high uh, elevations and intracranial pressure, you could get respiratory depression because the brain stem could be compressed. And that's referred to as a Cushing's triad. Another emergency or complications that I've already alluded to is the compression and herniation, which is, as you can imagine, a medical emergency. Now, how do we diagnose or how do we, um, uh, I, um, what do we do to identify patients with elevated intracranial pressure? Well, there are a number of different modalities that can be used depending on the severity uh, and the situation. So CT and MRI of, of a brain, particularly, uh, you know, are, are urgent things that you need to do. So you look for a mass, any compressions to the ventricles due to shifting, uh, as I mentioned, midline shift or circle effacement because um, the pr elevated pressure pushes the water out. So you don't get those sort of black, if you have a look at it on an uh, MRI or on a CT, you don't get that black um, differentiations between the sulci. Lumbar puncture can also be used to determine the pressure, but it should be avoided if you suspect a mass lesion, because if you remove a bit of that fluid to measure the pressure, that can then cause the brain to shift into that lower area of pressure, and that can then cause a herniation or compression. Lumbar puncture can also be used to treat, which I'll go into in just a moment. Another um, uh, approach to diagnosis is intraventricular catheters for monitoring as well as removing excess um, cerebral spinal fluid as well. You can do uh, other blood analysis, lab analysis, for example, looking at patients' electrolytes. As I mentioned, hyponatremia is um, uh, is a potential cause of cerebral edema. edema. So you can um, uh, look at the patient's uh, electrolytes to see whether they fit that picture as well. 
And finally, once we've made the diagnosis, how do you treat? Well, as you can imagine, as, and as I've alluded to already, there are a number of underlying causes of intracranial, raised intracranial pressure. So you need to address the uh, underlying cause. So for example, if you suspect a mass lesion, then um, if it's therapeutically indicated, removal, shrinkage by chemo radiation, for example, might be the way to go. If you suspect a venous thrombi, which is blocking drainage of venous blood flow, then anticoagulation might be an option to consider. Um, if you're suspecting edema, one symptomatic management will be to, um, to prescribe corticosteroids such as dexamethasone, which can help reduce um, inflammation and edema. As I mentioned, lumbar puncture and removal of cerebrospinal fluid is possibly one short-term treatment approach. Neurosurgical drainage devices, whether temporary or permanent, might be other options to consider. And very rarely do we um, do the neurosurgeons uh, perform a craniotomy to decompress the skull um, uh, because of the potential risk of complications. Other approaches would be um, using Becuronium to paralyze the muscles to decrease sympathetic tone, therefore decrease hypertension and, and the muscle relaxation as well, and muscle contraction as well. And finally, if it's really urgent, you can consider um, um, osmotic agents such as mannitol, which drive fluid out of the brain and hopefully increase renal clearance of it, and force ventilation as well, so decreasing. Um, uh, bringing the PCO2 right down because um, an elevated PCO2 can cause vasodilation and hence possibly increased blood flow to the area. So if you vasoconstrict temporarily, then you can decrease the um, uh, the, the pressure, intracranial pressure as a consequence um, and making sure there's adequate oxygenation as well. Um, and finally, with all this in mind, it's really important to mention that you have to really look at the patient and, the, uh, and um, treat the underlying cause. Because a lot of the uh, approaches that I've mentioned are for symptomatic management. They don't really treat the underlying cause. So ultimately, you need to treat the underlying cause. So that's, that's it for another episode, guys. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions or concerns, um, get in touch with us on Facebook, um, on our website, and on YouTube. We're always happy to hear back from you guys. Thank you. Bye. Our episode today was put together by our executive producer Gautam and our co-editor Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.